Have you ever been to an event where there was great regret and great rejoicing? Where you see people who are just uh, agonizing and others who are just adoring. Well, one that comes to mind immediately is what happens on the sports field. You have on one side of the field a team that's celebrating and another side of the field where a team is sobbing. Uh, this picture, I think, it captures that quite well, right? I've been both of those guys, you know, both sets of, of teammates. I've had, on occasion, the uh, sitting there on the bench watching my opponents full of gigantic gr grins with those heavy medals kind of just holding them down. I think I could carry those medals better than they could. And then I've had the chance to actually have one of those medals on, on rare occasion, we won our provincial championship this past year. My heart was beating out of my chest. Middle-aged men were jumping up and down. 15-year-old boys were hugging like these guys. Like, what other time does 15-year-old boys hug each other, right? But in these amazing times of celebration. Well, did you know that the Bible captures a similar snapshot? No, it's not at a sporting event. It's better. It's at a worship service. Let's read from Ezra chapter 3, verses 12 through 13 to discover as we rebuild that we should expect both discouragement and delight. We should expect discouragement and delight. In fact, discouragement and delight are part of the rebuilding process. And this is not just for in church, but also in all parts of your life. Think about when you have to rebuild maybe your knee or some other body part, and you go to the physioterapist, right, who uh, makes you do these horrible things that hurt so much and help actually help you. But it can be very discouraging. And then all of a sudden, you get that day where they're like, wow, you're doing so well, and I don't have to see you anymore. Or maybe think about your marriage and you're trying to rebuild the marriage and you've had a difficult time. There are days where you're like, I don't know if we're going to make it. And then, you know, there's times of great delight as you, as you cling to God and you cling to each other. I would encourage you, if you're at that point in your marriage where you're just like, I don't know if we're going to make it, would you cling to Jesus? Would you, would, you, would you cry out to him and ask you to help you in that marriage? He will. Even in churches, we see there's times of up and downs and rebuilding of, of a church of both discouragement and delight, both spiritually and physically. And so let's read more about how discouragement and delight are part of the rebuilding process. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be reading the last two verses of Ezra 3. Ezra chapter 3, you can look this up in the table of contents or on your smartphone. And here's what we read. But many of the priests and Levites, anybody like neck deep into ministry? That, pay attention, this is for you, okay? But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses. Any, any fathers in the house today? Okay, so we've got, we've got ministers, we've got Heads of, father, of, of father's houses, 
old men, any elderly people in the house today? My dad raised his hand, okay. Old men who had seen first the house, the temple, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish, catch this, the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Man, I'm hoping that would be true here, that all heaven would hear our praising to God. Before you sit down, verse 11 is what we're trying to memorize. It's a doozy. It's a big one, okay? And um, we've got, we, last week we worked up to the first half. So let's all say it together. Ezra 3.11. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Okay, we definitely need to try that one again, right? Ezra 3.11. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Okay, can we do it without looking? Come on, you got to have belief. Ezra 3.11. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Hey, that was pretty good. That was better than first service. So keep working on that in your small groups and in your families. And that's our verse for the month. You may be seated. Next week, we're going to really try to shout it out, okay? We're going to shout with a great praise to the Lord. Expect discouragement and delight whenever you rebuild God's work. Have you found that to be true? I certainly have. One of the big lessons we learn in the passage is that weeping and worship can happen at the same time. In a community... Even in a community that's unified and that's progressing, it's going forward, you're going to have people who are both happy and heartbroken at the same time. Today I want to talk about people's initial response to the work of God. I want to talk about what they did about it and how we can find hope no matter what, no matter what our emotional state that we're, we're in. I bet, in fact, that this week you've had your ups and downs. In fact, as people walked in here today, some of you, well, let's just be honest. How many of you are a little discouraged walking in here today? You had a hard week, okay? Thank you for your vulnerability. And how many of you are, like, super delighted? Awesome, okay. And the rest of you are just in the middle, right? You're, you're going between discouragement and delighted? Well, some of you, as I said, you're just like, today was awesome. It was this overflow. You were, you were ready. I can't wait to get to church. I can't wait to, to pray and to sing and to give and to hear God's word. Some of you are like, I just, I'm living on fumes here. If God would just pick me up. 
My friends, I have good, for you, good news for all of you. Both those that laugh and those that lament can and still should worship. Worship our great God. This is why it's so good to read the Psalms and get the, the robust, the full breadth of human emotion as you worship God. Reading and praying through the Psalms causes you to worship at all times. If you haven't done that in a while, I would encourage you to do so. You get the full emotional spectrum. Joy and jealousy. Feeling fantastic and feeling frustrated. Uh, let me talk about the various responses to God's work that we find in this passage. And I want to address both the discouraged and, and the delighted and everybody in between. So all of us. Verse 12 describes the discouraged. Many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, through many, though many shouted aloud for joy. Again, these are the most dedicated people. They're workers of the Lord. They're people who are, have been faithful Fathers and parents. There are people who have who have stuck with Jesus and stuck with God for a long time. They're elderly. These are the people who are disappointed. Maybe again, you find yourself in one of those categories. Well, if you think back. The people in Ezra's day, day that they're addressing, that he's commenting on and, and giving a historical view, is these are the people who were forced to leave Solomon's glorious temple and be carted off to Babylon for 70 years of exile. And I want to read a little bit of how the Bible records the beauty of Solomon's temple when it was first made in 1 Kings 6, 14 through 36. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. You can just listen and imagine. Place yourself in those courtyards of that temple. And imagine how beautiful it was. Here's what we read in 1 Kings 6, 14 through 36. This is like the grand opening. This is the grand opening of... Solomon's temple. 1 Corinthians 6.14 says this. So Solomon built the house and finished it. And he lined the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar. Whoa. Now we, we use wood all the time, but cedar, cedar is really expensive. Where does cedar come from in those days? Lebanon. So this is imported wood. It, it's come a long ways. Expensive. From the floor of the house to the walls of the ceiling, he covered them on the inside with wood, and he covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. Again, more, probably more imported wood. He built 20 cubits. Now, a cubit was 18 inches. One cubit was 18 inches or 45 centimeters. So that's, that's a lot. That's 30 feet. He built 20 cubits of the rear of the house with boards of cedar from the floor to the walls, and he built this within as an inner sanctuary, as the most holy place. The house, that is, the nave in the front of this inner sanctuary was 40 cubits long, and the cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers. All was cedar, no stone was seen. The inner sanctuary prepared in the innermost part of the house to set there the Ark of the Covenant, 
And the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. It's a cube, isn't it? And he overlaid it with what? Yeah, pure gold. And he also overlaid an altar of cedar. And Solomon overlaid the inside of the house of pure gold. And he drew chains of gold in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. You might want to start highlighting all the times gold is used. And he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house is finished. And also the whole altar that belongs to the inner sanctuary he overlaid with gold. And in the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim. What are cherubim? They're angels, but they're not just any ordinary angel. Not that there's ever an ordinary angel, but they're fiery angels, right? And if you recall back to Genesis, that's the first time we encounter cherubim. Who guarded the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve sinned? The cherubim. These big, fiery angels. So, in other words, you couldn't get in the Holy of Holies. These, these cherubim symbolize this was a very, very holy place. I go on. Verse 24. Five cubits was the length of one wing of the cherub, and five cubits the length of the other wing of the cherub. And it was ten cubits from the tip of the wing to the tip of the other. The other cherub also measured 10 cubits. Both cherubim had the same measure and the same form. Like, that's amazing. There was no machines that could form that. And the height of one cherub was 10 cubits, and so was that of the other cherub. And he put the cherubim in the innermost part of the house, and the wings of the cherubim were spread out so that a wing of one touched the one wall, and the wing of the other cherub touched the other wall. Their other wings touched each other in the middle of the house. And he overlaid the cherubim with gold. Around all the walls of the house he cut and carved figures, engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers in the inner and outer rooms. And the floor of the house he overlaid with gold in the inner and outer rooms. For the entrance to the inner sanctuary he made doors of olive wood. The lintel and the doorposts were five-sided. And he covered the two doors of olive wood with carvings of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers, communicating beauty, right, and holiness. He overlaid them with gold and spread gold on the cherubim and all the palm trees. So he also made the entrance to the nave doorpost of olive wood in the form of a square and two doors of cypress wood. The two leaves of the one door were folding. The two leaves of the other door were folding. And on them he carved cherubim and palm trees and open flowers. And he overlaid them with gold evenly applied in the carved work. He built the inner court with the three courses of cut stone and one course of cedar beams. Now, some of us not, might not be in the trades and not know much about building, but you can all get the idea, like, this was a pretty spectacular place, wasn't it? It might not have been considered one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, but this was a glorious, golden, gleaming sanctuary. And it was for God. In fact, the most important part as we find in a couple chapters later in 1 Kings 8, 1 through 11, that the Ark of the Covenant was placed there. The Ark of the Covenant. That was the manifest glory of God, the Shekinah glory. That's where, where God dwelled. So you have this amazing place where God and gold existed in pure holiness. It's great. That alone would make Indiana Jones quake with excitement. 
Now, if you don't know who Indiana Jones is, talk to your parents, okay? Solomon's temple was glorious. But what the elderly forgot was that Solomon's temple had been given away piece by piece over the years. This happened almost as soon as Solomon died. Because at the end of his life, his many wives led him to commit acts of idolatry. And so... His son did not get to reign very long. The, the kingdom was torn in two. And whenever there's not unity, others come in and fill the vacuum. In 1 Kings 14, 25-26, it records this. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, that's the king that followed Solomon, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem and he took away the treasuries of the house of the Lord. That's just one generation after Solomon. And the treasury of the king's house. He took away everything. Wow. That meant the gold. Because as we follow along in Israelite history, we find in 1 Kings 15, 16 through 18, that there was another king by the name of King Asa, who had to give away more of Solomon's original temple furnishings. And this is what it says about King Asa. There was a war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, all their days. And Baasha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might permit no one to go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. So what did Asa do? Then Asa took all the silver and all the gold that were left in the treasuries of the Lord and gave them into the hands of his servants. And King Asa sent them to King Ben-Hadad, who was of Syria, the Syrian king, to fight against Beja and the rest of the Israelites. So let me try to put this in our modern context. This would be like taking all of our sound equipment, all the lights and all here, giving it to our Muslims so that they could fight Hesler Baptist Street down the, down the road. There's some problems, isn't there? And Asa is considered one of the good kings in Judah's history. And then there was good King Hezekiah, who later on we read in 2 Kings 18, 14 through 15. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of gold. The king of Assyria had a siege Jerusalem. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was, and I've added the word left, found in the house of the Lord, and the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord. Do you see what's happening here? For years, Israel's kings had given away part of Solomon's temple to appease attacking armies that God had sent to discipline them because Israel had been committing adultery. That's what it was like for God. Adultery. Idolatry is adultery to God. So the elders in Ezra's day would have forgotten that their forefathers who witnessed that brand new spanking um, temple of Solomon and seen how glorious it was with all the gold. And if if they could have gone back and those forefathers who witnessed the, the temple in Solomon's day now been... Fast forward many years, hundreds of years later to just before the Jews were carted off to Babylon, they would say, what's happened? They would be weeping, wouldn't they? 
They'd be like, this, this, this temple that Solomon built, is this a shell of what it once was? My point is that we will always be disappointed at physical efforts. Decay will win. Legacies we try to leave on earth will not last. I'll say that again. Legacies we try to leave on earth will not last. Jesus told us this. He taught us this. Matthew 6, 19 through 20, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves. We learned about this in the treasure principle before Christmas. You lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So this immediately begs the question, why are we building a $12.2 million project here? Why spend all this money on something that ultimately will not last and may not last many generations beyond us? It's because the people who will come here and receive the Lord Jesus Christ will last forever. And that's where we store up treasures in heaven. This is just a tool for God's glory. It is dangerous to build earthly legacies and romanticize the past. The good old times weren't as good as we remember. I look back at times when I was younger and I have fond memories. I used to love to go to school. They had recess, right? It was wonderful. You could play sports. And once in a while you had to go to class and you'd learn something that I thought was pretty neat. I look back at those times. I look back at when we first got married. It was wonderful. I look back at when I get to hold my those little babies that Lori gave me. They're wonderful. And I think, wow, could we go back to those times? But I forget that in school at recess, I got bullied at times. I forget that when Lori and I first got married, we're both firstborns, and we had to figure out who was going to lead, and she still does. <laughs> Just kidding. And, and I forget, I remember thinking about this this week. I was like, oh, I saw this baby. I saw a little baby, Ruby, here today we prayed for too. And I was like, boy, they're so sweet smelling. But then they're not always so sweet smelling, right? <laughs> it was the same in Ezra's day. The exiles became exiles. Why? Because of their idolatry. And just before the exile, it was some pretty horrific times. There were, there were children being slaughtered in front of their parents' eyes before their eyes were plucked out. These were not such good times, were they? But we romanticize them and think, oh, why couldn't it be like before? Which is why I don't think this is only about the old people. You see, they, weren't, they were disappointed at something worse. In Ezekiel 10 through 11, it records the vision that God's glory had left the temple. It had gone east. It was so disturbing to the people. And this may have been the cause of concern for the Jewish veterans. Michael Morales, in his awesome book, Who, Ascend, Who Can Ascend the, 
the mountain of the Lord, says this. The historical return from exile did not usher in the new heavens and new earth, nor was it an exodus to make the previous one from Egypt pale and by comparison. As for the rebuilt house of God, many of the elderly priests and Levites and leaders of Jerusalem wept as they recalled the the greater splendor of Solomon's temple. And most devastating, and catch this, the glory of Yahweh never returned to the second temple. These considerations, along with the manifest lack of renewal in their hearts of the Jewish returnees, served to foster the understanding that Israel was indeed still in exile, still awaiting the glorious new exodus, an apocalyptic expectation that would lead the flock of God to the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly Mount Zion. In other words, the older Jews' expectations were higher because they believed that the Messiah would come back. Once they built the temple, the Messiah would come and restore Israel. And it wasn't happening. See, roughly 200 years earlier, God had promised to the prophet Isaiah and in Isaiah 35, especially verse 10, I'll read it to you. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads and they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. But it hadn't happened. In fact, you've got to see this. Look at Isaiah 40. Look at Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 is maybe one of the most famous chapters in this big book of Isaiah, the prophet. You can again look at the table of contents if you need to. Isaiah 40, verses 9 through 11. A definitely a messianic prophecy here. And look what it says in verses 9 through 11 of Isaiah. Get you up to a high mountain. Kind of sounds like kind of how mountain people talk, right? Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young they were looking for the messiah so this was not an age problem it was an anticipation problem and this can be true for all of us aren't you eager for jesus to come back to create a new heavens and new earth Aren't you excited about that? We've been waiting nearly 2,000 years. And so there's a certain reality that all of us should weep until Jesus returns. And isn't that what Jesus explained in Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 15? Just to, I'm trying to give you biblical theology here. And remember the disciples of John, they came to Jesus and said, hey, why do the Pharisees and... And, and we, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, 
Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom's with them? The days will come when the bridegroom's taken away from them, and then they will fast. Therefore, we should be weeping and fasting until the bridegroom, Jesus, comes back in great display and glory. No wonder the spontaneous cry of disappointment breaking into celebrations in Ezra's day would be a foretaste of much that was to follow. There was disappointment and delight at the same time. The problem is, is if we don't also celebrate. Before Christmas, we studied Haggai as part of one of our, our build series. And recall Haggai 2.3, which states, in this kind of a similar situation, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Let's not let our eagerness for God's glory and Jesus' return cause us not to celebrate the smaller wins today like, like people coming to faith in Christ, right? Amen? That's why we're still here. Because Jesus wants to call more people to himself to be a part of forever, God's forever family. God is still working. These efforts on earth still count as long as we rely on the Lord and his power. Right after the famous verse in Zechariah, Zechariah 4, many of you know this. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but what? But my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. We read in Zechariah 4, 8 through 10. Again, describing the same situation, the same perspective of the Jews, the exiled Jews, the returning exiled Jews. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Forever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. These small things were actual stones. These stones were still small in comparison to what Solomon had constructed. One commentator puts it this way, the contrast between the small stones used here in Ezra 3 and the huge blocks of stone used in Solomon's temple might have been too much for the older people. Even today, the smaller, smaller Turkish stones of the western wall of the platform stand in glaring contrast. You can see it in this picture to use those in Herod's time. They're smaller stones, you can see, right? That were used. But here's the thing. The stones are still there, aren't they? Even though they're smaller. It's a reminder that the power is not in the stones, but in God's enduring faithfulness. It's a reminder of the fact that God has a new stones for us. This is not where we pray and this is not where we worship. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-5 through five declares the truth about Christ and his church. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You and I are living stones if we belong to the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. 
Let me read Michael Morales' explanation. Israel's historical return from Babylon to form a nation once more was a resurrection of sorts, a feat for nations to behold. While exile meant death for Israel theologically, it took the uneventful return from Babylon, laced with hardship and stumbling back into the former sins to drive the point home. Sheol, that place of death, was not merely a characteristic of life in Babylon, but of Israel's national heart. Israel was dead spiritually. It was in darkness. The return to Judea served only to clarify both the diagnosis and prophesied remedy. Upon the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and only then would Israel become the new Israel, the Israel that had been resurrected from Sheol and ushered into the heavenly abode of God. And here's the best good news. Only Christ would accomplish this. And this is the hope that we all share. And that hope, whether you are discouraged or disappointed, it can turn into action. Listen up, this is really important. If you look back in Ezra 3, look at verse 8. We find in verses 8 and 11 that all the people were there. In verse 8, it says in Ezra 3, the last part, or now in the second year after they're coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel the son of Sheatiel, and Yeshua, the son of Jozadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and listen to this, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. Then look at verse 11, our memory verse for this month. And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Did you catch that? Everyone still worshipped and everyone still worked. Disappointment does not equal doing nothing. We must learn to engage when we're discouraged. When you are down, take a hymnal and sing through it. Put on your best worship music. Serve the Lord and his people. Think about the words of Job. Though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. Working for and worshiping God fights depression. I'm not saying it's the only thing that fights depression, but it sure does when you get off, you focus off yourself and get it onto the Lord. Have you been discouraged before and all of a sudden you start thinking about how great God is and, and thanking him and praising him and you're like, wow, my spirits are lifted. And this is why you don't just do it alone. You do it together with God's people. It's one of the reasons why you need to be in church every day. If you're down, like, you know, I'm just too down to go to church. That's the totally opposite thing you should do. You should be hightailing it to church. To worship our God together. See, the temple was, of course, more than a foundation. It was a place of, of cleansing and atonement, of festival gatherings, of gathering in community. It was a place of, of forgiveness. And that's what the church should be. To pick you up and to remind you of our great God. We're still going to fast. Jesus has not come back. It hasn't happened fully yet. But we continue to worship God, don't we? Our new building will be more than 
new walls and rooms. It'll be a place of great community to have fellowship with God and each other. A recreated property should cause us in us to have a rekindled passion for the lost, for worship of our great God. A desire to go. A reminder that we were in exile because of sin and that we want to create a place not just for ourselves, but for others to come and that future generations would worship our great God. The good news is it didn't need to just happen in Jerusalem. Why? Because Jesus. Jesus declares in John 2 that he was the new temple. He was, as he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up again. That's good news. Through the Holy Spirit, who worship in spirit and truth, we, as his body, are part of his new temple. Jesus has been resurrected. The temple of God is on the move. And we can be both discouraged and delighted and still have hope as we work and worship on rebuilding God's house. So let's sing with great shout to the Lord. May the world not know whether we are discouraged or disappointed, as verse 13 says. And may the sound be heard far away to the ends of the earth that Jesus has set us free. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and to sing this psalm, this new psalm that we want to teach you, that you're free. Do you believe that? God is so great. Whether you're discouraged, whether you're delighted, or somewhere in between, you can worship our great God. Let's go on with him in prayer. Oh God, right now, would you stir us up? Would you let us take our downcast soul and would you lift us up in the spirit? We worship you in spirit and truth. And then, Lord, if we're already delighted, and this has just been almost like a cherry on the Sunday, God, I pray today that we would, with even greater passion and joy, worship you. Lord, I pray that if there's some here who are discouraged because they don't know you, would they get saved today? Would they receive Christ? Would they, would they have their balloon next week? We just pray this in Jesus' name. God's people said,